We're continuing on uh, today in Ephesians, where we've been all summer uh, in, in the series, Rooted and Grounded. Uh, and so I'm going to invite Camille up to read our passage for today, the second half of chapter 4. Yeah, you, you can use this one right here. I'm also not that tall. This was made for Nate or somebody. So, okay. Um, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may f have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Thanks, Camille. So at Straw Poll in this room, raise your hand if you were born between the years 1980 and 2000. Hands. I see those hands. I see that hand. Yeah. All right, most of us, that's what I thought. If you raise your hand, that makes you, with me, part of a cohort, a hugely culturally influential widely diverse and perhaps the largest group in the history of the world. You, my friends, we, with the exception of a few people, five or so people. I know. We are millennials is what we are. You might sit back and tune out to this, especially those five. Because like some of these terms, we say them so much, we no longer know what they mean. You know, like postmodern or authentic or evangelical or hipster or missional. They just don't mean anything anymore. Some people are really anxious about millennials, including probably my parents. We're less and less bound to a job or a desk or a place, the way things are and have been. We're more and more open to the new which usually threatens old ways, old institutions and old wineskins, like the church. There's some anxiety about millennials in the church. 
Some are excited about millennials. After all, we're educated, we love technology, community, family, creativity, we're, we're more urban focused than our parents and our siblings. Millennials particularly love millennials. And Jay, there's a slide. This was a Time magazine cover about millennials. Some aren't anxious or excited, they're just annoyed by millennials. Imagine how strange it would have been to, to try to tell yourself, e even the millennials in this room, your childhood self, the concept of like social media or Netflix or the selfie, or by extension how bizarre the selfie stick is. Isn't that ridiculous? Millennials. Like always, our greatest gifts can be our greatest weaknesses, and this is for every generation. Innovation can turn can turn into suspicion and, and disconnection from how we got there. Creativity can turn into cynicism or inefficiency. Urban renewal can turn to gentrification and social connectivity can turn into some kind of disconnected Gnostic loneliness where we don't even know each other except through a screen. For all the hope and change that millennials embody and expect, our news cycles are fast, everything's fast. I'm starting to think more and more that we're like that, that kid in Little League that hit his stride earlier than everyone, and then when everyone leveled out to him, he just kind of faded back in the pack. This past week in the, in the Washington Post, there was an article, and it was titled, The New Millennial Mystery, Why Young People with Jobs Are Still Living at Home. <laughs> we want change. We want growth. We want a different world, and we have a lot of the tools to get that. But often we continue unchanged, lacking maturity, stunted in our growth. If I had to assign a passage of the Bible to millennials, and this is a, a pretty fun um, exercise to like play the Holy Spirit here, you know, it's probably the story of the lost son, or we might know it as the parable of the prodigal son. You see, even as we're challenged by and scandalized by the grace that allows wretches like us to come back over the bridges that we've burned and then have a shindig thrown in our reinstated honors, there's not a heck of a lot of description about what that family looks like later. Sometimes it seems like we assume from silence that it'd be okay for that son to keep going on burning money, living recklessly, and eating from a pig trough. But no, when the boy hits rock bottom and comes to himself on the way back to his running father, we assume he's ready for a change. Even if that change, surprisingly enough to him, is to grow into the son and the brother that he already was and left behind to take on those benefits and those responsibilities of being in a family. So as we keep going this week in Paul's letter to the Holy Ones in Ephesus, the main message this week is change. No, really, grow up. That's what Paul's saying. Chapter 4 is the hinge of this letter. It's the hinge that swings from what God has done, the mysterious 
open secret of including not only Jews, but Gentiles into God's people, the holy ones, the ecclesia, those who have been called and called out by God, called out of where they were and who they were. And then prior to chapter 3, the focus was on who God is and how God is. In chapter 4 and following, the message is who we are and how we are in light of what God has done by his spirit through his son in making a people. In short, how we're changed by this. Last week's passage introduces this word. And for all the Greek scholars in the room, the word is meketi. Uh, Meketi, and it means no longer, no longer. Uh, the, the passage from last week. Then we will no longer be infants. I, I think you have this, uh, maybe not. We will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become, in every respect, the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. The writer is throwing the metaphorical kitchen sink at us in this passage, right? Mark, uh, commentator Marcus Bart, he says, the metaphors rooted in growing, they refer to the mystery of growth in life that sustains the church. The metaphors of body, joints, babies, measure of maturity, point to the one new man who shall no more bear the signs of infancy. There's movement here. There's growth. Maturation, where you and I were once like my four-week-old daughter, Emmett, who's making noises back there, completely at the mercy of everyone, gullible, vulnerable. Now we're not. Now our body's grown big and strong. But not our body, Christ's body, getting bigger and stronger, getting thoughts from the mind of Jesus. That mindset from Philippians 2. Not exploiting our newfound life with God, but making ourselves nothing, humble servants, obedient to death, even and especially in the shape of the cross. We get direction from Jesus' vision for the world and for our relationships of ourselves. So we work with other parts of the body that look and act nothing like us, so that we can move in harmony, so that this body can run and this body can play and serve and suffer for the right things. So part of this, this no longer life for us millennials and for really anyone else, but it's, I think especially for millennials, is this no longer life doesn't exist any longer. This no longer life no longer exists. We're used to change that doesn't require change. We don't change, we upgrade, right? We, we download a new update. We live with our head not in the clouds, but in the cloud, right? Like, we're, we, we're learning fast that something, once it's posted on the internet, is forever. 
Like diamonds used to be forever, now the internet is forever. You can't leave anything behind and it'll almost certainly come back to haunt you. I'm reminded of comedian Jim Gaffigan, he does this bit on the staggering amount of photos that we take and keep, right? He, he talks about this strange new impulse that we say to ourselves, this inner monologue. He says, man, I wish I could take a low-quality photo of my dessert and then text it to someone who doesn't care, right? <laughs> Only millennials have that impulse up until now in, in the history of the world. Where we once had boxes and photo albums, now we have like, we stack hard drives up in our closet, right? That's what, that's what it's been. Go look it up. It's amazing. There's a permanence, though, in this kind of life. There's a, a clutter. The idea that change might require us to let go, not just of our comments or our pictures or our media, but of what we've known and who we've been is a really increasingly strange notion. We somehow think that we can just shift, that we can just take a minor course correction without jumping all into this kind of no longer life that the resurrection and God's grace entails. C.S. Lewis talks about this in Mere Christianity. He says, God became man to turn creatures into sons and daughters not simply to produce better men and women of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It's not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. Instead of wings, we, we opt for endless life hacks to just kind of jump a little higher, right? To get a little closer to the appearance of flight. And we wind up stunted we're so afraid of commitments and relationships. We're really bad at friendship and intimacy, especially intimacy without sex. Like we're terrible at that as a, as a broad generation. We're spiritually immature. In the gospel, the good news of Jesus says no longer. So I tell you this, and you have the scripture up there, Jay. So I tell you this and insist on in the Lord that you must no longer live as Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. They have lost all sensitivity. They have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. They are full of greed. No longer you have to stagger around in the dark. Because in Christ, you've seen what God looks like and what he's all about. No longer do you have to be stubborn or cynical or ironic or guarded. Because Christ has torn down the walls and perfect love cast out fear. So we don't do anything out of regret and we don't do anything out of fear any longer. No longer do you have to substitute intimacy for sensuality. Being truly known for being temporarily thrilled. No longer do you have to be driven by more and more and more and more. Because in Christ we've been given abundance. 
Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. No longer do you have to hold all these things that are too heavy for you. They're too big. No longer do we have to try to invent the wheel of what it means to be happy. No longer do you have to try to grab and control. No longer do you have to manipulate someone else. No longer do you have to hold on to anger or resentment. Hold someone in that prison of your mind. No longer do you have to live in scarcity. Because God's given us exactly what we need. I think some of, some of what Paul's tell, Paul tells us here makes sense. But some of it sure sounds like him trying to tell us what to do, and we hate someone trying to tell us what to do. We fear that he's trying to control us and limit us. Why would we be limited? The sky's the limit. Who needs the Bible with all its suffocating rules and ethics? We've heard that before, I'm sure. We've said that before. So often we look at sin as freedom. It's a chance to choose for ourselves. But then when that plays out, it, it often plays out as burdensome, as cluttering, as overwhelming. I love that we sang that song today because it, it reminds us to be overwhelmed for the right reasons. A fundamental part of what it means to be human is to not be God. And I think once we come to grips with that limit, that limiting factor, we can be free inside other limits. Where we're Eve's children, we believe that lie, that limits hold us back. When I think limits can be, can be uh, uh, ways for grace to do some of its best work, a skeleton for the body to run. And everything requires a choice. And choices limit. If you're an indecisive person, most likely somewhere along the line, you, you fear being limited. That's why you can't make good decisions fast, right? It's hard to know what to leave in and, and what to take out. And, and here's the thing, though. And, and you can put up the next slide, Jay. Here's the thing, now. From the, the greatest song or piece of art to getting dressed to work, to, to go to work presentable and decent, like there's choices involved in all these things, right? Whether we like them or not. Ask, ask any artist, and, and you, if it's a filmmaker, they'll say 90% of the film that I took wound up on the cutting room floor, and my film is better for it. It's what to put in and what to take out. You make dozens of choices that limit you before 9 a.m. every single day. I mean, you already made the choice whether to set an alarm, whether to obey that alarm. You, you made a choice whether to make coffee or not, whether to eat breakfast or pack lunch, to help the kids get ready, 
what shirt to wear, what socks to wear, whether or not to shower and how to do your hair. You've made all these small choices. This is like a choose your own adventure story, right? Every single day. Man, life would, would be so much awesomer if it was a choose your own adventure story. But every small choice, even some of the ones that we're not aware that we make, craft the picture of our everyday lives. And limits are there. They're necessary. They can be constrictive or they can be freeing. And most artists know this. At least most successful artists do. And, and when I think about artists and limits, and, and everyone has them, um, but I specifically think about uh, this band uh, called the White Stripes. And, and they, they do limits as intentionally and purposefully as anyone does limits. Um, if you're not familiar with the band, the, they, the, the, and this is no longer the case, Jack White's making music with other, other stuff and fuller, fuller uh, palette. But at, when they started, and for these six albums and, and more, they were operating as, they used black, white, and red, as I'm sure you can see. Ba uh, guitar, drums, and voice. They operated in these threes, and it was almost this challenge, this riddle, this puzzle that they, they used. And they made awesome music that, was, that, that ranged from like punk rock, garage stuff, to rockabilly. And they had this, this great breadth of sound inside these limits. They saw, as well as anyone, that limits and, and, and kind of constrictions can force us to create, that deadlines make us move. And this is the logic from everything from a, a haiku to an improv comedy to Twitter, right? Structures, prompts, word limits give us the rails we need not only to function, but to flourish. Unless we forget, maturity, growth, and flourishing is the goal of this resurrection life. When Paul asks us to live a no longer life, he's not trying to be puritanical. He's not trying to oppress our true selves or repress our deepest desires. He's trying to lighten our loads. He's trying to give us the raw materials to grow into godly, interesting, self-giving, truly human women and men. He's, he, he's trying to help us in our relationships with each other in this triune God. He's asking us to trust God the Father who's gone to extravagant lengths to bring us back to him. Not just to give us what we need, but to lavish us with grace to the point that we breach the brims of ourselves and overflow to our neighbors into this world with grace. If you're asking, how could this ever happen? It's certainly not in our own power. And no longer life is walking in and with the Spirit. You see, the Spirit is always sneakily there. One theologian called the Spirit the shy member of the Trinity. For this reason, fully God along with the Father and Son, whenever you deal with one, you're also dealing with the other two. But somehow the Spirit manages to stay in the background. Remember a few weeks ago when I had some 
pieces of art up and we were playing Find the Pigeon for the Holy Spirit because they normally just put a little dove like in the corner. But the Spirit's always there in the background. The Spirit is the glue. The Spirit is the wallpaper, always whispering, always wooing, always present, breathing new life, sealing us. The down payment, the assurance, the preview of the kingdom that's coming in Christ. But most often, we expect the Spirit to show up big, right? We want Pentecost fire, we want a Jobian whirlwind. We want the kick drum of youth camp praise songs. But we miss how gentle the Spirit is. How careful. How personal. When we forget who we are and who we're becoming in Christ, the Spirit doesn't coerce us violently. Doesn't slap us upside the head. Doesn't blow an air horn in our faces to let us know we're out of bounds. No, the spirit is grieved. His feelings are hurt. You and I have ignored his lead. We're pulling the thread on the masterpiece that he's knitting. We're settling for far less. We're cluttering ourselves with far more than he needed. When we do this, we're we're denying grace. We've taken the spiritual life into our own hands and out of the spirits. So the answer is to let go. The answer is to let go. No longer hold on to bitterness. Because it'll make you the kind of person that can't give or receive grace. No longer hold on to rage or anger. Because it will, over time, make you the kind of person that looks to violence and revenge instead of unity and peace that comes from grace. No longer hold on to brawling or slander in every form of malice. Because that makes you a combative jerk. <laughs> that makes you a cancer to the body, a malignant harm to what Christ is accomplishing in the church. Instead, be compassionate, be kind to one another. We often forget that compassion is a suffering word. Compassion is not just advocating, like, again, millennials' compassion is like the hashtag du jour. Like, that was my compassionate move for the day. But compassion is hurting with someone. Because Christ's passion hurt with and for us. Instead, forgive each other, just as Christ and God, just as God and Christ forgave you. Do you see here? The way that we ungrieve the Spirit of God is to remember and to embody what the other two members of the Trinity have done. Just as Christ. God forgave you. If you thought you heard that line before, you have, right? Forgive us our trespasses as we have forgiven those who trespass against us. 
the second to last line of the prayer that Jesus taught us, it encapsulates how we're to live in light of the gospel. And it's not just because, as Desmond Tutu has said, that there's no future without forgiveness. It's not just because it takes a lot of strength and kind of like assured self to forgive someone. No, it's because embedded into the very word forgiveness is grace. Look it up again, all you Greek scholars. Charismenoi has charis, grace, right in it. To forgive someone is to offer them grace. So that forgiving someone means offering what you've received in Christ. It means trading in the currency of the kingdom. It means being ensconced in God's love. It means being involved in your own makeover in the spirit into the image of Christ. No longer anything other than a part of Christ's body. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the challenge of a passage like today. The challenge to change. To leave behind old ways and seek you in your kingdom first. We thank you for your spirit who's, who's remaking us as we participate in the ways that you're renewing and remaking this world. Father, bind us together as your body. We pray that we don't grieve your spirit, that we are forgiving, that we are sensitive to each other, sensitive to the ways that you're moving. Take away greed, take away malice, take away slander, take away untruthful talk and replace them with with who you are and how you are, Lord. Continue to grow our unity. Grow the peace of this one new man from your grace. Lord, we thank you that none of this is up to us or else it would be impossible. But what's impossible for man is very much possible for you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.